we have 17 cases that are literally one step away from the Supreme Court, including a six-week ban in Georgia from 2019. And so the real threat that Roe could be overturned or just chipped away until it is in a name and right only is, is very real. We are witnessing America as a failed social experiment. How do we tell this story in a way that builds the kind of emotional momentum that colorblind ideology builds? So many young brothers and sisters of the younger generation find themselves so far removed from the best of their past. What are we going to make out of the nothing we've been given? How do you envision possibility? We are pleased to be joined by a dear friend and a fierce champion for reproductive rights at a time when this is desperately needed. We have the president of the Planned Parenthood Action Fund, Alexis McGill-Johnson. Alexis, you're on the tightrope. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're, we're we thrilled so to have you here. We are blessed to have you, though, Sister <laughs> Alexis, one of the best coming out of Princeton and Yale with my dear blues brother, Rob Johnson. <laughs> But what a moment we in, what a grim and bleak one we in. How are you dealing with this moment? Right. So, you know, look, I mean, I think for the last eight months or so, we've been living in a twin pandemic, uh, both COVID, which has laid bare the systemic racism in our healthcare system, as well as the racial reckoning, the movement that has been long under overdue, um, but certainly underfoot right now. And then we were in a an election season where... The president has literally failed on everything, on the economy, on COVID, on foreign policy, on our standing in the world, on climate. And their closing argument was always going to be access to abortion, access to sexual and reproductive health care. And so to come through in a moment where losing Justice Ginsburg and replacing her with Justice Barrett is just insult to to an injury that we've been really grappling with over these last few months. Yeah. I was going to ask you about the uh, implications of Amy Barrett, Coney's appointment, not only in terms of the women's reproductive freedoms and rights, but also to Planned Parenthood. I mean, it's been a trem- I mean, it's been more than an insult, but it's been interestingly non-challenged. You know, there, there's been not much in the way of media coverage about the real implications of this. It's if it's just a technicality. So how are you dealing with it inside the organization and what are you seeing around the country on this issue? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, the, the real threat is that we know that she is a vocal threat to sexual reproductive health care, particularly abortion, uh, but not just abortion, also birth control, also IVF, you know, like a full span of sexual and reproductive health care. We have 17 cases that are literally one step away from the Supreme Court, including a six-week ban in Georgia from 2019. And so the real threat that Roe could be overturned or just chipped away until it, it is in a name and right only is, is very real. It's very material. We had a preview of it at the beginning of COVID, though. If you remember, there were a number of governors uh, across the South and the Midwest who decided to use the pandemic as uh, cover to push their political agenda against uh, sexual and reproductive health care. And they uh, limited access to uh, to abortion. So in states like Texas, we saw 
patients driving upwards of 16, 18 hours from Texas to Colorado, uh, in some cases just to access medication abortion because they weren't able to get access in state. And that's ultimately what, what's at stake here. That's absolutely what will happen. Some states, if Roe falls, you will be able to decide if it's the right time for you to start or expand your family. And uh, in other states, you will literally be forced into pregnancy if you don't have the resources to get out of state. And that's what we're concerned about under a Justice Barrett and with the ways in which we've actually used the courts as a stopgap with some of these harmful bans over the last decade that they have now created this pipeline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's about as grim as we can get, though. I mean, to think that, you know, we've got so many fellow citizens who would choose neo-fascism and therefore have abortion and still think that somehow that's a trade-off that they can live with so that women's bodies would have that little weight, as it were. And the same would be true in regard to poor women's bodies, black women's bodies, brown women's bodies, and so forth. How do, how do you deal with that kind of grimness as the visionary leader that you are? Because you're right there on the front line having to deal with that trade-off, you see. Yeah, I mean, and it's quite frankly, it's what drew me into joining the board of Planned Parenthood actually uh, almost 10 years ago. You know, I was raised certainly for uh, love of blackness and working around issues of, of race for most of my career. But I was walking down the street in Soho and I actually saw this billboard with this little black girl's face on it. And she was just so cute. I just wanted to see what she was selling. And when I got closer to it, the words underneath it said, the most dangerous place for an African-American is in the womb. The ways in which black bodies and black women's decision-making has been demonized, like literally damned if we do, damned if we don't, intersecting race and gender in an organization that has traditionally been led by white women. We've got to dig deeper into like how we are going to center the experiences of black bodies if we are actually going to get through to the other side and really get back to reproductive freedom. Yeah, but you know, it's it's complicated as you well know by the fact that pro-life uh, activists also come out of black conservative contexts, often church environments and so on, in which many black women uh, support at least in principle and in concept, pro-life agendas. Have you been in touch with uh, those aspects of the Black community in terms of where we are now? And do you think that people with those views have enough influence to you know, shave off just enough support for Biden because of the reproductive rights battle that's being waged and, and their own sympathies with it? Yeah, actually, I mean, I do. I think what we've seen is actually Black American support, particularly for abortion rights, has um, has increased tremendously over the past decade. And in fact, there there's a, a Pew study that suggests they're now as likely as non-Blacks to say that abortion is morally acceptable and more likely to support it in all circumstances because we understand just like any other disparity, that that we will be the ones more likely to have to make some of the harder choices due to economic mm. circumstances. So it's actually been a significant change over the last 20 years. And the, you know, and even among religious groups, there's not a monolith. You know, I know there's a lot to say about Judge Barrett or or Vice President Biden's Catholicism, but even Catholics are split on where the decision should lie, you know, whether or not it should be made between the person taking the abortion, their partner or their pastor, whomever, or more likely some white state legislator, you know, or 
worst case, Donald Trump, right? So I think when you frame the decision point around who you really want to be involved in that very intimate personal decision, we are able to have those conversations that really bring people further into the understanding why it's really important to stand with this right. And then also understanding the implications of it. The majority of people who are seeking abortion are actually already parents, right? They're making a decision not just for them, for their families. And, and those are the ways in which I think we've been able to bring people around is it partly generational, though? Do you find that the uh, sisters of all colors under 30 have a very different perception and way of looking at the situation than those over 30? I actually think what we're seeing from the under 30 generation is how deeply vibrant their understanding of intersectionality is, right? And I think that's actually where an organization like Planned Parenthood has to lean in, right? We talk about centering our patients, but what does that really mean? You know, it's like, yes, like if I look at it through the lens of our patients, to me, that means that they may be coming to us for birth control, they may be coming to us for STI testing or abortion, but when they leave, they may be worried that ICE is going to show up on their job. They may be worried that police officer may pull them or their son over um, and what could happen. Um, and so it's, it's really about living with the whole experience and the whole patient and young people inside our organization, inside the movement have really pushed us to really operationalize intersectionality in a way that we haven't had to before because we could always just use our, you know, use our big voice and platform to talk about, about choice. And people say, that's actually not the most urgent thing right now. You know, it is important, but what's more life and death is, is whether or not I can walk down this block or not. Wow, that's very interesting. Really interesting. How do you think that would play out? I mean, what, what might you be doing differently if you were to further operationalize intersectionality in the way you provide services or the ways in which you understand the, the platform? I mean, it's one of the reasons why we supported, you know, uh, Movement for Black Lives very strongly in the, you know, in the spring and used our public health voice to say, you know, we are a key part of the public health infrastructure. You know, I've spent a decade doing work around bias and racial anxiety with police officers, with prosecutors, with DAs um, and healthcare providers. And they will tell you by and large, they don't want to be on call to grapple with mental health. They don't have the training to grapple with addiction or other kinds of health crises. And the budgets are so skewed that we don't often have the public health representative um, mm. who is probably overworked to engage. And so it looks like us using our voice to engage in a conversation and help connect the dots between, you know, um, when people say defund, one of the things we're really talking about is, is how we divide resources and how we make sure that everybody is supported to do their work complementary and ensure that the best care is offered. You know, it just strikes me that one of the paradoxes of living in a moment of such deep spiritual decay and moral decrepitude is that you've got uh, right-wing brothers and sisters who say, well, we've got this moral compassion for the vulnerable. And that becomes an argument against abortion. And you say, well, how is the moral compassion going to be changed and transformed so that it embraces Pentagon militarism, predatory capitalism, white supremacist treatment of folk, and so on. And then you say, well, what, but what about women's control of their own bodies as well as then 
you're concerned about the unborn. Do you see any kind of movement among the right trying to broaden and deepen their self-understanding in which they view themselves as having this moral compassion? You know, I don't think so on the economic condition, right, that I think undergirds Mm -hmm. a lot of choices that people are making with respect to abortion, although not all, right? I mean, certainly, you know, your right to choose regardless of your economic circumstances is part of the right. The economic condition is one that, quite frankly, should tie together more communities in the fight than it does. I have seen a fair share of, you know, of op-eds just recently about people who are pro-life and they are making choices to support Joe Biden because they also believe that Black Lives Matter. And so they are wrestling with how to be consistent in their philosophy. And one would hope that that would would translate. But I I don't find that the narrative that the anti-abortion activists are pushing, it it continues to stop at, you know, at delivery. Right. It doesn't actually support access to schools. It doesn't, you know, support access to the Affordable Care Act even, you know, and I think that the proxy, you know, that you see around anti-abortion, it maps onto a whole bunch of other problematic issues that are largely racialized. And, you know, and I think is, you know, is really what we're up against when you look at actually how the evangelical community became so active um, around anti-abortion and in politics. Mm. That's, I mean, it's it's really a shocking gap of, of analysis, right? That, you know, all of this support happens for an unborn child, right? Who's completely dependent physically on their on their mother. And yet, you know, once they're born, they're just cast to the wind. Poverty, hunger, healthcare access, education, all the things we're talking about just disappear. But let me ask you a, a sort of tangential question because we've got the you know, a, a dear friend and brilliant leader of, you know, Planned Parenthood. So I have a, I have a kind of tech reproductive question. Are we in any way moving even haltingly toward technological answers that would, in a sense, supersede the practice of abortion that would give women's reproductive rights greater stable sort of you know stability in the environment so that we wouldn't really be in this abortion battle of course we'll have a new battle i'm sure but is there anything that is in the sort of tech pipeline that might change the game in so far as you know not push us back to where we might have been before roe versus wade well, I think, you know, look, I think medication abortion has done that um, where it is tied up is in regulation, you know, and I think that that as a, as a very important advancement for people to be able to manage uh, in, in many cases at home once they've gotten the prescription, their own the termination of their own pregnancy. You know, I think that the, and in many of these cases, as I was telling you, people were driving out of Texas during the, the pandemic or out of Ohio out of the pandemic, you know, they were largely going to pick up pills and going back home to, to use them. The question is around how to really fight the regulations around that, how to make sure that the revolution that we've seen in telehealth over the last pandemic time has allowed us to, to see patients and to be able to, to provide. I mean, abortion is safe, one of the most safe, safest procedures. And so I think that those are the ways in which the advancements, leaning into the advancements that already exist, I think is really important. You know, one just wonders whether deep down it, it, it's a question of a certain indifference and callousness that can easily be cast uh, in the language of compassion, because we ought to be deeply compassionate about the vulnerable, 
But when you're actually talking about not just stopping at deliverance, but also the compassion for the woman uh, who has to make the decision, whether there's just a, a cutting off of a certain kind of flow of genuine compassion, and, and how do we account for that? One wonders. It's about control, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's about, uh, it's hard to have compassion when you are trying to control and deny people freedom. And I, and I think ultimately that's what this fight is about and that we do have to use the language of denying someone's ability to imagine their own future that fundamentally starts with your ability to control your own body. And so if you cannot control your own body, you, you can't make all the determinations about how you or you want your family to live. And so when I think about the the compassion side of the argument it's, it's hard for me to see why they would when control seems to be so much more um in their purview and to me it just fits within the the other fights around freedom and and i think particularly as a black woman and as black people like i feel like there's like a movement equation for me in this work that is like freedom is is justice times power right justice is fighting the dehumanization of how people see us. It's fighting the dehumanization of our trans brothers and sisters. It's, it's fighting the dehumanization that allows people to lock children in cages. And it's the amount of power that we have built. Planned Parenthood, when I started at, on the board, was two mil- we had 2 million supporters. We now have 16 million supporters. And that has been fueled by like most other movements, largely black, brown, queer, young, extraordinary leaders who really are living these fully intersectional lives. And so like they understand that freedom is how we wrap all of these ideas around fighting against dehumanization, but putting our power and muscle behind it. And that that's where the energy of the movement is for me right now. Mm-hmm. It's that the outside game, like the outside game is actually stronger than the inside game. And I haven't, I haven't seen that in a, in a minute. But um, two million is sixteen. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, you would think it's a matter of just the golden rule. I mean, if men could give birth, it'd be a qualitatively different discourse on abortion. That if 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 I be in the Constitution, Cornell. If I were a gay brother, if I were trans, I would want to be treated the way I'm treated as a straight brother. So there's some kind of blockage that sets in people don't see clearly enough the humanity of the yeah. the folk who are being dehumanized you know yeah but you know what what what's amazing about what what you're saying alexis around the trans queer uh youth communities really grasping the centrality it's because the body itself is at the heart of their own decision making about who they understand themselves to be and so yes. once that fundamental question is opened up and freed up from, mm-hmm. you know, judgment and biological determinism, then reproductive rights are like a small potatoes item along the way to a much broader thing. So it, I, that makes so much sense as soon as you said it. That's very exciting because the kind of non-binary gendered analysis and, and, and thinking that a whole generation is asking us to understand is, I think, going to be very rewarding for reproductive rights and freedoms in particular. 
Absolutely. And I think that's as it should be, right? I mean, it should be a part of a suite of things that gives us freedom. And I think that the question at the heart of all of these movements is the same. Are our bodies our own? You know, are we able to determine our own futures and live in our authentic selves? And, you know, we use this language around, you know, bring your authentic self, you know, centering your patients. And it matters actually how you build the structure to do that. So for an organization like Planned Parenthood, and I think this is where I was going around the adopting a more intersectional framework internally, that to me means that if Planned Parenthood health centers are built around the canary in the coal mine, it means they're built to serve everybody. Oftentimes, you know, we build them, they've been built to serve one community or not, our politics have been built to serve one community or not. But in the very act of recentering, has forced different kinds of priorities and conversations that are so centrally baked, they can't be cast off if you don't have the right set of of funding or resources. So that to me is the exciting opportunity of leading Planned Parenthood at this time. Well, they are blessed to have you. We are blessed to have you as leaders in that context, all the other work that you do on the culture and the work that you've done with bias and so forth. I mean, you've got quite a legacy already and still young. I'll tell you, you got three, three (laughs) legacies, uh, you know, running simultaneously. Amazing. That's the truth. Well, I started out with both of you all. So, um, so both of you all as, uh, as friends and leaders and mentors has been so important to my own growth. And so I'm really honored to join the tightrope with you. Oh, well, we're thrilled to have you and you know, you're welcome. Absolutely. God Anytime. bless your whole family, your whole family, Rob, and the two precious ones. <laughs> yes, indeed. I'm sure they're, you know, they're, they must be so much taller than the last time I saw them at this point. You know, they're just growing, growing, growing. So listen, you're welcome back on the tightrope anytime, really. any Anytime you want to come talk and, of course, off the tightrope, but we'd love to have you back anytime. Thank you so much for joining us, Alexis. It's been great to see you. You too. Hello, my tightrope brothers and sisters. I want you to join us on election night for our live watch party with some very special guests, and they include Marion Williams, Bhaskar Sankar from Jacobin Magazine, Eddie Glaw, Ashley Woodard Henderson, Kashama Sawant, and Father Flager from Chicago. That's the south side of Chicago. And Christian Scott, grand jazz musician. Go to our YouTube channel on the Tightrope Pod and set a reminder so we can notify you when we're going live. See you Tuesday night. <laughs>